Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. At the outset of Victor Hugo's best-known book, Le Mis, some of you know that book, we find Jean Valjean recently released from prison, where he had been there for 19 years on a charge that originated in stealing bread for his hungry sister. He's just been released, and you see him wandering through the streets of a certain town, unable to find any place to sleep because the inn won't accept him as an ex-convict to sleep there. So he tries to sleep outside, but finally a bishop takes him into his house, an aging bishop, and in the middle of the night, this recent convict gets up, walks out to where the bishop is sleeping with an iron drill in his hand, and contemplates killing the man and taking his goods. He decides against killing the man, if you remember, but he does steal some of the silverware, which is really made of silver, so very valuable, steals some of the bishop's silverware and makes his way out into the night. And Jean Valjean is caught by police and the next day, I think, brought back to the bishop. And as he's on his way back to this man whom he had almost killed, whose silverware he had stolen, this aging bishop, as he sees him coming with the police around him, says this, Ah, there you are, he said, looking at Jean Valjean. I'm glad to see you. But I gave you the candlesticks too, which are silver like the rest, and would bring 200 francs. Why didn't you take them along with the cutlery? And at this, Jean is, of course, astounded. The old man dismisses the police, lets Jean Valjean go with not only his silverware, but also his silver candlesticks. And as Hugo ends that chapter, the bishop draws close to Jean Valjean and urges him with these words, Do not forget ever that you have promised me to use this silver to become an honest man. If you know the book, The rest of the story is the story of Jean Valjean, who leaves that incident, commits one more petty theft, and then, in light of the way the bishop had treated him, deeply repents of it, turns from that theft and from his whole manner of life, becomes the owner of a factory, and then a mayor, and then a very sacrificial caregiver to an orphaned girl, and that's the rest of the book. I wish it were that simple to turn someone's life around. It's not. But even though Victor Hugo overlooks some of the complexities that come with real repentance and turning a life around, he does hit one point directly on the head, and it's this. And it is the point of this message today as well. And that is that love gives birth to love. In the gospel... Our souls are reformed by the power of the Spirit working within us at the moment of conversion, and that is true, but it's not a sort of mechanical process that happens without any thought on our part or any experience. It just happens like that. God uses means. If it were just a mechanical, invisible process that you might not even know happening, Jesus could have come to earth and died all in one day. 
It wouldn't matter, right? He could just come, no need for these 30 years, and just die the same day that he came. But it's not a mechanical process, and Jesus in coming came not only to die for the sins of men and women, to send the Spirit to renew us inwardly, but he came very intentionally as well in his life to be an example of love, demonstrating love for us as his people. He loved his disciples, and we read, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And as he was loving them to the end, he said, just as I have loved you, so you love one another. My love needs to give birth to love in you, love begetting love. We see his love, and then our hearts are stirred to love in just the same way. In this is love. This is what love is says John, not that we have loved God, for we don't naturally, but that he loved us. And then shortly afterward he writes, we love because he first loved us, which is the same way of saying his love begets, gives birth to love in us. We are the convicts who find an unexpected mercy in the one that we have wronged, and it takes our breath away. We're the ones who stole the silverware, and we are surprised to receive such kindness in response. Our evil falls upon the head of this innocent Jesus, and then he turns, and our guilty gaze connects with his own eyes, and like Peter, we rush out into the night and weep bitterly. But then, having seen that love, we get up, and we dry the tears, and we strengthen the brethren. We love them because his love gives birth to our own. If you want to think of it this way, as if the cross were set afire and there are sparks or embers that fall out from where that cross is and our dry brush of hearts that do not naturally love at all, if we just get them close enough to the cross where Christ's love is, then one spark will touch our dry brush. And that love of Calvary will bear fruit of love in our lives as we catch a blaze because love begets love. I'm saying all this because in this class, I have been arguing that for you to be satisfied in Christ, Christ and no more, you must grow in your love for Christ. But that leads to the very practical question that we began to address last week, which is, how do I do that? How do I grow in a love for Christ? And last week we saw the connection of obedience and growing in our love for Christ. But this week we're looking at another perspective, another answer to that question, how do you grow in your love for Christ? Yes, obedience is a component, but here is another component. Love begets love. As you behold the love of Christ for you, your love for Christ grows. If you want to put it the other way, if you feel a lack of love for Christ in yourself as a true Christian, some of that may well be due to the fact that you are not rightly seeing the love that Christ has for you. And so this class and next week are dedicated to considering, contemplating the love of Christ. Now, I don't think that this exercise is merely human. 
as if I presenting factual information to you and you knowing my language, taking that information in, would then ah, automatically love Christ and be so satisfied in him. There are many who as children sing, Jesus loves me, this I know. And they grow up and the rest of their life, they never have a love for Christ. This isn't automatic. We have to pray as we apply our minds to the love of Christ seen in Scripture. We have to pray the same thing that Paul prayed in Ephesians chapter 3. His request for the Ephesians was this very thing that God would strengthen the Ephesians through His Spirit in the inner person. Why? So that they would comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth of what? He explains. To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And if it surpasses knowledge, then you can't expect to just know it on your own because it will always surpass you. So we are praying that as we consider the love of Christ, so that it ignites a love in our hearts for God, for Christ, that God would intervene and help us by faith to really grasp it in the inward person. If that doesn't happen, then we've wasted everyone's time. And if that happens, then God is doing something profound, and that's our desire today. So then, the love of Christ a huge topic. Where do we begin in Scripture to consider the love of Christ? There are many places you could turn to almost any page of Scripture and there find either a prediction or an illustration or a declaration about Christ's love. But because our time is short, we need to be selective and choose a passage that has a condensed focus on the love of Christ. And for that reason, we're going to turn to Romans chapter 8. So if you have a Bible, Romans 8, and the passage we're looking at begins in verse 31, and we'll cover half of it today, and the other half we'll leave for next week. There's too much to cover at one time. Romans 8, 31. Here's where we begin our consideration of Christ's love. 31 begins, What then shall we say to these things? And these things are the gospel. That if you trust in Christ, that faith alone in Christ, you get his righteousness. So when God looks at you, he loves you. He embraces you, not because you're perfect, but because Christ's righteousness is yours through faith, not through trying to work really hard, but through faith. That's these things. That's Romans 1 through 8 in a very small nutshell there. What then are we going to say against or about these things, this gospel? If God is for us, which he is, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for you. How is he not also with him going to graciously give you everything? Who's going to bring a charge against you, God's elect? God is the one who justifies you. Tell me, who's going to condemn you? Christ Jesus is the one who died. I will add, for you. More than that, he was raised. Why was he raised? So that he could be at the right hand of God and intercede for you. 
so that forever you are innocent and uncondemned. And lastly, then we end now with this question, which you will know the answer to. Who will separate you from the love of Christ? Now, we've heard this passage before, probably, but I want to think about it in a certain way this morning, and that is by considering it as an answer to a common objection to the love of Christ, and one which maybe you have thought, maybe you didn't even think you had thought, but you have. And here's the objection, and this is going to answer it. We'll come back to this shortly, but here's the objection. Christ loves his people, we agree. But his love for me as a Christian is limited. You say, well, why is it limited? Well, this is the objection. It's limited because I'm sinful. I fail God. So why would that limit Christ's love for me? Well, you see, if Christ loves me with no condition, if I'm a believer... And I act as if, even when I sin, Christ loves me, then I'm going to be condoning sinful lifestyles of unbelievers. Because if I'm going to act like, oh, I sin, but Christ still loves me, so I still have some encouragement as I repent of that sin, if I don't go into a penalty box for some time to kind of do my penance and work this off, and if I'm just going to fully believe Christ loves me right now, as I am a sinner, And Christ loves me because of his sacrifice for me. If I believe that, then I'm going to be bringing comfort to people who should not have comfort. Because an unbeliever who thinks he's a Christian is going to look at my life and go, Oh, you think Christ loves you even though you sin? Well, I sin, and Christ must love me too. And I don't want to do that. So, here's the objection to Christ's love. The objection is, I can't just think of it as a fool and a complete love at all times if I fail it needs to be sort of dampened. I need to think of his love as somewhat less. If there's no sense of frown or displeasure of Christ coming at me when I sin, if he's still smiling by grace, then that's going to send the wrong message to the lost world. So, Christ's love for me, he loves me, but it's a lessened kind of love. This objection somewhat like an insect that adapts to pesticide, can go even further and say, okay, I know that you're going to answer that in this way. You're going to say, no, the gospel's promise is that you have Christ's righteousness and you are loved at all times. Yes, that's what you're going to say, but that is all well and good, but if we take it to that extreme, it becomes a license For believers to sin, for unbelievers to sin. Therefore, we should not, even though on the one hand, yes, okay, the gospel is true and we know Christ loves us, not dependent upon us. But on the other hand, we can't just set it out in those clear terms or think of it in that way because it becomes unhelpful. There's a subtlety to this argument that rings of truth while at the same time somehow being entirely false. But it's the ring of truth is why we listen to this kind of a whisper, that there must be some 
internal consequence in the love of Christ for us when we sin or when we fail. So how do we answer that objection? For your heart to be warmed by the love of Christ so that you love him in return, you see that requires that you see the love of Christ as it is, not lessened by your sense of your own unworthiness, because you are unworthy, or your sense of your own sinfulness, for you are sinful. And if those things are going to lessen the love of Christ for you, then how are you going to warm your love for him that leads you away from those sins, you see? So how are we going to respond to this objection that Christ in some way must love you less if you sin as a Christian? I want to take an aside to give a historical example that illustrates this well, this objection and a response, and then we're going to return to Romans 8 to find the answer there. Because it's interesting that this almost exact dilemma was, in a sense, at the heart of the 16th century Reformation. When Martin Luther proclaimed on the basis of the authority of Scripture that men could be forgiven by God, cherished and loved by Him without the rules and regulations of the Roman Catholic Church, do you know what some responded with? Our very objection. If people can be justified by faith and forgiven and loved fully by Christ, having his own righteousness, even when they sin, then you will send anarchy into the world. If we do not set up the Roman Catholic Church as a sort of measure of how well you need to live your Christian life, if we were to depart from that and just say you're forgiven, then people would break all bonds. If they don't have the standards of the Roman Catholic Church, then people in hearing the gospel would get rid of all standards and live terrible lives. That was the objection to the gospel and to what Luther was preaching. And this line of thought was captured probably best in Luther's most famous written work, one of the only written works in Luther's own opinion that was worth surviving and being read today. And that work is called On the Bondage of the Will. You see, what had happened is a man named Erasmus, who was a Greek scholar and a supporter of the Roman Catholic Church, had written his own book on free will, and it was directed against Martin Luther to make him look very bad to fight against Luther's cause. So Luther, after some time, wrote his book as a response to Erasmus. So here's Erasmus who's going to defend the Roman Catholic Church, and then here's Luther who's saying the church has no authority, only the word of God has authority in his, among his people. You remember Luther was saying, we don't need the Roman Catholic Church because priests are unnecessary, for Christ is our great high priest. We have direct access to God. We don't need an ongoing sacrifice, as the Catholic Church considered the Eucharist to be, for Christ is a sufficient sacrifice. He's enough. We don't need any more. We don't need the words and opinions of popes and councils, for Christ has given us his very word in the scriptures, and it alone bears authority. And Erasmus came back in response among many others and said, if you follow that line of thought, that you don't need this law of the Roman Catholic Church, this measure to live up to, and you say people have the liberty of confession and satisfaction, meaning they can go directly to Christ, then anarchy follows. Then people will live any way they want. There will no longer be a, a fear and submission to the Catholic Church 
so people will do whatever they want to do. To us, it's easy to see the flaw in that argument, but in Luther's day, it was not so easy. People were accustomed to that way of thinking. Luther intended to see the Roman Catholic Church toppled by the word of God, and even though Erasmus was sympathetic to some of the abuses that Luther saw in the, local, in the church at that time, and even though Erasmus conceded many points to Luther, yeah, you're right, yeah, this isn't exactly how it should be, Erasmus' argument was, even though the Roman Catholic Church having authority over the consciences of believers and setting these rules and this standard isn't ideal, if you get rid of it, you'll turn the world upside down in a bad way. You'll catch it on fire in a horrible way. There will be anarchy. Now, how did Luther respond? Because you see, this is the same objection we're considering today, which is, if I just embrace the love of Christ for me, even when I sin, even when I fall short of whatever standard I have that I need to be living by, but if I embrace the love of Christ still, I'll send anarchy into the world. Unbelievers will take that as license to sin. Here's how Luther responded to Erasmus with that same objection. Luther said, Erasmus, you're probably right. If we denounce the authority of the Catholic Church and instead proclaim the actual gospel of Scripture that men have access to Christ himself, then unbelievers will probably get worse. They won't have the fear of the Catholic Church, so they'll probably do whatever they want to do. But, Luther wrote, and I'm quoting now, these, the lost, are not to be considered of so much consequence as that for the sake of restraining their abuse, the word of God should be taken out of the way. For if all cannot be saved, yet some can be saved, for whose sake the word of God is sent, and these, on that account, love it the more fervently and assent to it the more solemnly. You have to think carefully on this logic of what Luther is saying because it applies exactly to what we're talking about now. Erasmus is whispering our doubt. We can't detach Christ's love from everything but faith. There have to be ways to measure obedience. In fact, if you say you believe and therefore you have the full love of Christ with nothing else, that isn't last week's lesson useless. Why do you even have to obey? How does that even apply? This is the objection. But you see in this objection how legal you become. You are standing again at the foot of Sinai. You're not allowed to touch the mountain as it quakes and it blazes. And there is on your shoulders the heavy tablets of stone, which is too great of a yoke for anyone, your forefathers or yourself to bear. If your argument is going to be I cannot fully embrace the love of Christ for me when I sin, then what you're saying is that Christ's love for you is contingent or dependent upon how well you obey. But you see, the question then becomes, where is the standard? How well do you have to obey to get more of Christ's love? And if his love depends on your obedience, logically we're speaking, not chronologically, but logically depends upon your obedience then you're a Muslim. Then you are Roman Catholic. You're Hindu. You hold to some tribal religion. 
But you're not Christian. Christians have a gospel that is very different. And it says, if you believe, you have the righteousness of Christ and are fully loved by the Savior. In fact, He has chosen His own before the foundation of the world and set His love upon them. And it's a love that cannot be broken and does not depend upon how well you obey. Who obeys perfectly? Who would ever have a full assurance of Christ's love if it depended upon obedience? There is a better way to proclaim this full love of Christ. And it's what Luther says. His argument is basically, if you're afraid that you, living as if Christ loved you even when you sin, is going to send a false message to the world that they can sin and claim Christ's love, then Luther says, forget the world. Forget the lost who would be misled by that. Because it's not worth losing the gospel of Christ's love for you in order to protect the lost from something that can't really be helped. Luther says, let us not take the word of God out of the way because we think pragmatically it's going to help the world in some manner. We must adhere to what God says. And God's word, the gospel, at its heart is this, an unconditional love for his people, even when they sin. The word of God has not come into the world for those who perish. For those who are perishing, yes, to bring them to life, but for those who ultimately perish. So to block up the word of God to try to preserve them isn't right. That's what Luther is saying. Let's say this coming Wednesday, your friend offends you. And you should not, but you do respond with harsh words. And you offend your friend in return because it feels good in the moment. Then you think about it and realize that you've done it's wrong. And you repent before God. You're broken in your heart. And you repent to your friend. You make things right. And then what do you do next? That's what we're asking in this lesson. Well, the next thing that you may do is walk across the ice into the penalty box of Christ's disfavor and sit in there for some time, right? You can't approach God in prayer. You can't get into the Word and really enjoy it right now. You can't share the gospel. You'd be a hypocrite because you just sinned. You sinned against your friend with the way you used your tongue. So give it a few days or weeks or months or whatever you need to to kind of let Christ's disfavor of you, His frown, wear off. And then you continue in His love. Does that sound familiar? That way of thinking and you say, if I don't sit in the penalty box, then other lost people, when they sin, will think, well, it doesn't matter, because it doesn't matter to you, obviously, because you think Christ loves you still. So I don't have to get in the penalty box. But there need not be any penalty box of Christ's disfavor for the believer. What Luther's saying, and what we affirm through Scripture, is that do not let what you think may mislead the lost. It's just a thought. Maybe they'll misunderstand that. Don't let that cause you to bury the word of God that says, no, it's true. Christ loves you. He favors you. Even if you are imperfect and have sinned. Luther says it must not be that, quote, for the sake of restraining their abuse, the word of God should be taken out of the way. 
So that is a historical example of the love of Christ, permanent for believers, even when we sin. But what is this word of God that Luther says we shouldn't take out of the way? Does Scripture actually assert the same thing that Christ loves his people with an unfailing love that does not alter when it alteration finds, that doesn't change when it finds imperfections in you or when you sin or when you fall? Does Scripture say the same thing? And that is why we are looking at Romans chapter 8. So read this afresh, hear it as I read it, but now consider it an answer to the objection we've been talking about. Should you sit in the penalty box of Christ's disfavor? And Paul answers, well, what then are we going to say about the gospel? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, and mind, when he gave him up, you hated God. You were, however sinful you are now, more sinful before you knew Christ, because you never had a thought of love toward God, and that's when he gave up Christ for you. That's when he demonstrated more clearly than anywhere else his love for you as a believer was when you hated him the most. And if he did that back then, how will he not also with him now, even though you sin, graciously give us all things? Who's going to bring a charge against you if you're God's elect, if he's chosen you before the foundation of the world and redeemed you in time? Then who is going to bring a charge against you? Say, I will. I've got lots of charges against me. No, not even you can bring a charge against you. Why? Because it's God who justifies freely. Who condemns? You condemn? Are you greater than God? No. Christ Jesus is the one who died, but more than that, he rose again and went to the Father's right hand. And you say, well, this applies to mature believers. But you see, if you knew the life of my mind, if you knew some of the things that I've thought, if you knew some of the things that I've done in secret, if you knew my past, this doesn't apply to me. I'm a hypocrite. I'm hardly worth being called a Christian. I just want to slip into the gates of pearl behind everyone else. If this doesn't apply to sinners, it applies to no one. Why else would he say Christ died? Why did Christ die? For sinners, for sinners who sin. And he rose again. Why? So that he could go to heaven at the right hand of the Father and plead the case of sinners. You don't need an advocate with the Father if you're perfect and you do not sin. You need an advocate if anyone sins. As 1 John 2 says, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. This passage, if you're a believer, is not for someone else out there. This is a passage for you. And it's answering your objection to Christ's love. And it concludes, at least as we're reading it today, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And Paul's emphasis in these verses before is, Will guilt separate you from the love of Christ? Is there any guilt, real or perceived, that will separate you at all the smallest bit away from the full embracing gospel love of Jesus Christ for you? And clearly Paul's answer is, no, no one, no one can do that. You might think you need to separate yourself from the love of Christ, get in the penalty box, 
He says, no, God justifies you. You can't even condemn yourself. The question we have to ask is not questions like, practically, if I just embrace the love of Christ for me, even in my lowest moments, will that send a false message to the unbelieving world? But the question you have to ask instead is, is God for you? Because if God's for you, then let him be for you. Don't, don't change that. Don't do what Erasmus was doing and try to take the word of God out of the way or try to bury it because you're concerned what the consequences for others may be. If God is for you, he's for you and you cannot contradict it. Don't ask if I, a weak and sinful Christian, a frequent hypocrite, should walk around happily and claim that Christ loves me nonetheless. Won't I be just the same as unbelieving hypocrites who use Christ's love as an excuse for sin? Don't ask that question. The question you ask is, has Christ died for you? Has he justified you? If he's justified you, he's justified you. Nothing changes that. Not even you. And if it seems convenient for one reason or another to maintain that Christ loves sinners, we still have to maintain it. And we maintain it to the end of the world, for without that fact there is no gospel. The objection whispered in your ear that would in any way have you mitigate the love of Christ for you or lessen it is attacking the gospel of Christ. Christ's love is free. Allah's love is not free. The gods of the Hindus, their love is not free. Christ's love is free. This is the way that the gospel speaks. Come ye sinners, poor and needy. And the hymn writer speaks again the gospel when he says, Let not conscience make you linger, nor a fitness, worthiness, fondly dream. This is all God requires from you, that you feel your need of him that you know you're a sinner, that you know you're not worthy of his love. That's the only fitness. That's all that's required. But doesn't that require that I feel bad enough about my sin before I assume Christ loves me and act like he loves me? No. Don't I need to obey if I want his love? Isn't that what you were saying last week? No. Please don't misunderstand that. Last week we said that chronologically... When you believe, obedience comes at the same time, but logically, and we must maintain this, faith comes first. And if you believe, no matter how weakly, like a mustard seed, fine. If you believe, help my unbelief. If you believe, the love of Christ is yours. And nothing you do is going to lessen it. Nothing you do is going to remove it. If you're a believer in Christ, his love is yours. It can't be taken away. God is for you. He gave his son for your benefit. What won't he give? Gather together every charge you have ever imagined against yourself, every evil thing someone thinks of you, whether it's true or not. If we could find the people who hate you most and ask them why, gather all of that data together and then push it out of the way because Christ has taken your sins. His love will not be separated by any of those things. Who will separate you from the love of Christ? Those people who hate you? You yourself with your own thoughts against yourself of why Christ should not love you? None of those things shall separate you from the love of Christ. Who is going to bring a charge against God's elect? Many people, but no charge will stand. It is God who justifies who's to condemn. You see... 
I am trying to make you happy. I hope you realize that, even though I'm speaking maybe differently. I want you to know that Christ loves you, but this is about more than you being happy. The gospel stands or falls on this fact that Christ's love is free and not earned. If the love of Christ fails to reach you who believe in your worst hour, in the lowest part of your deepest shame and failure and fall, then the gospel breaks. Then it's useless to us. Then it means nothing. If Christ's love only reaches you when you're doing well, then we don't need a gospel. We have Islam. We have the religions of the world, and they all say the same thing. It's the gospel that says Christ's love reaches you when you fail. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? And clearly it means no one, and you can't say someone or something. This is the fire of the cross by which you must sit and contemplate that free and unconditional love of Christ if you would have an ember or a spark fly from the cross and reach the brush of your own heart. If you want to grow in your love for Christ, contemplate here. Bring the objections that you have and don't ignore them or just suppress them, but answer them by Scripture and push them out of the way. But do not set the Word of God aside. How do we love Christ more? This is one way. How can we be more satisfied in Him so that we don't need anything else? This is a way. It's not the only way, but it's a way. Pushing aside objections. Because no matter what you feel, no matter what your thoughts may be, if you are truly a believer, Christ loves you. And nothing will make Him stop. Let's pray and we'll have a little time for questions and answers. Savior, we thank you for your love. Thank you that you give it to us despite the faults of sin and despite the failures that our personalities are most prone to. Maybe we're too talkative and you still love us or we're too judgmental, but you do not judge us. Maybe we are too timid to speak your word with boldness because we love the approval of men. Still, you approve of us. Maybe we are afraid, like we shouldn't be, of death, or anxious, like we shouldn't be, of tomorrow. But you will still provide for us and still take us by the hand and lead us across that narrow river of death to the celestial city. You will still be by our side, even if we are Mr. Fearing and must be pushed, as it were, up to the gates of the heavenly city. You will push us and will bring us safely to our heavenly home. Help us this week as the objections come and continue against your love for us, that we would not believe them, that we would not wallow in the despair of hopelessness, thinking that we can never earn your favor because that's true, but we don't have to. I thank you for the freeness of gospel grace and your choice before the foundation of the world to place your love upon certain persons and that you would make those persons us. Thank you for the giving of your son, his shed blood, which speaks a better word than Abel's, which testifies before the court of heaven that we are innocent and always must be. 
It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We have about eight minutes. If there are any questions, we'll address some of those. Yeah, Marilyn? Yes. Marilyn's point he said oftentimes when we sin, we, um, there is a shame that comes with that, and rightly so even. I mean, sin is wrong, but we often equate that sense that we've done wrong with God not loving us as much, and that's the problem. Not, not that you shouldn't feel shame for sin, you should, you should detest it, but that you would think that Christ's love for you would lessen is more the problem. And yeah, Marilyn's point, the way you deal with that, not wallowing in despair, confess it. It's God's way of saying we've got something we need to clean up in her words. It's good. Yeah, Darren. The idea of God being angry, mm. is that a totally separate, mm. can that be combined with love, his mm. love for us also? No. And the thought comes from his discipline. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, so Darren's question is, what about God's anger? What do we do with that? Does that coincide with God's love? Because scripture does speak of God's discipline of those he loves. So it suggests an anger there. That, the believer? Yeah, and he's speaking of God being angry with believers. And I would... I would Good. Yeah, and I, I would agree. God has a, a what we would consider a displeasure or an anger even toward believers. But when you think about maybe two different kinds of anger, if you are, this is somewhat, somewhat yeah, righteous anger. This is somewhat a looser way of seeing it. But if you're in war or even someone breaks into your house and they're trying to harm your family, and that will probably cause anger in you, but it's an anger that desires the removal of that person. It's not an anger that's like, oh, I'm upset, but come give me a hug. That's a certain kind of anger. There's another kind of anger you have toward your children when they disobey. And to the degree that that anger is not just you sinfully angry because you've been inconvenienced, but you really feel a righteous indignation against the brazenness of sin, and you can have that coexisting with love. And in fact, if you didn't love the child, you might laugh, you might just swish it aside. But sometimes love is what kind of prompts the anger as well, because this is wrong. So to your question, yes, there's an anger that coexists, can coexist with God's love. But typically when we think of God's anger, most people that I'm interacting with when they're thinking of God's anger for me. They're not thinking of it as coexisting with love. They're thinking of it if they had a 
father who was less than he should have been, and he would burst out in anger on his children, and then later say, well, I'll just do it because I love you, but he doesn't. It's, it's a sinful kind of an anger. But this is an actual anger that really is love, and that's employed not for our destruction or harm, like get the thief out of the house, but this is employed for our benefit always, like discipline, instruction, yeah. Good. Does that make sense? Okay. It's always, the love is always there, yes. Other questions? Yeah, Jason. Hmm, that's a great question. Jason asked, is it a true statement to say that God expects his children to enjoy their forgiveness? And I would say, if it's not, forget everything you just heard I said. Because <laughs> that is very much what I want to get across here. Is Yes, and that's a great way to phrase it. Believers should enjoy the forgiveness that they have because that's what brings us to God. Yeah. Yes. Joel. Uh, Joel was pointing out in the Psalms where David says, restore to me the joy of your salvation, God's salvation. So just reaffirming what Jason said there. Anybody else? Yeah. That's good. Good. Never take questions from a doctor. They give you the hardest questions. No, just kidding. That's a good question. I would see James 4 as speaking particularly to unbelievers because you see uh, the injustices that he's claiming are being happening here. So when he's saying, draw near to God and he will draw near to you, definitely that has application to a believer. I see that passage as speaking to unbelievers. They've been wronging their, uh, I think, is it the next chapter or that chapter? They've been wronging the people they should be giving wages to. So these are horrible injustices. And James, in a lot of ways, is very reflective of Old Testament prophets who are very concerned with injustice happening. And so James is speaking to them and saying, you know, you're probably not a believer here. And you need to wash your hands. You need to cleanse your hearts. You need to uh, return to the Lord. You need to draw near to him. And he'll draw near to you in salvation. But even if you don't see it that way, I mean, there are many instances in Scripture where you have God appealing even to people who maybe you would consider his own people and appealing to them to repent. But um, I don't see that as limiting his love. Is there something I'm missing in that passage specifically that, that you were wanting to touch on? Gotcha. That's good. Oh, okay. Fantastic. Great, great, great point. So James 4, specifically pointing to how it's talking about to these sinners, seemingly unbelievers, but if, even if they are believers, and he's saying, mourn and weep over your sin. If they're unbelievers, repentance over sin, which, depending on personality, partly, some people are have the outward clear outward brokenness and it's a wonderful thing some people just tend not to express emotion the same way and can still be uh, jonathan edwards religious affections 
deals with that. So it's saying mourn and weep. Well, what will that look like? Will that look like a, a lengthy time of brokenness? And it could, especially for an unbeliever. For a believer, there should be mourning as well over the sins that we commit. But even with that mourning, you can mourn and still have this sense of Christ's love for you. And that mourning's going to look a lot different if you think Christ loves you. It's different. There's a mourning that's like penalty box mourning where you're kind of ashamed to go to God and like, I got to wait this one out. And then there's a mourning that's like Psalm 51 where you're appealing to God like, I've done wrong. This is bad. Please, you know, return the joy to me. Draw near to me. And those are kind of different kinds of mourning. Does that answer the question? Okay. Uh, we are out of time. <laughs>